my name is Joanne Olson. I'm the president of the Station Keepers, and we'd like to welcome you here today to Barry's Bay, this little town in eastern Ontario that wants you to come for a visit but stay for a lifetime. It's not every day that we get to celebrate this grand old building, our beloved old wooden railway station. 125 years ago, this coming week, this station here opened its doors for the very first time. It was one of 30 such stations built back in the 1890s along the new Ottawa, Arnprior, and Parry Sound Railway, the OA and PS. It was built at the behest of John Rodolphus Booth, a Canadian like no other. By the end of the 19th century, his OA and PS railway would become the largest private railway in the world, a fitting match for Booth's gargantuan sawmill in Ottawa. By that time, it had become the largest sawmill of its kind and the world, and it was that Ottawa mill that depended on the virgin white pine cut up here in the Madawaska Valley. It's a little known fact that the decks of such famous canard line ships as the Lusitania and the Mauritania were made of timbers cut right here along the Madawaska. That might strike some of you as impossible to think of this valley, this station, as being somehow connected with the oceans of the world. But strange, it was not. In fact, on this very station platform that I'm standing on, over 40% of all western grain would pass through Barry's Bay in the early part of the 20th century on its way to the overseas markets of the world. It was why this railroad station was built to connect Barry's Bay to the world. It was built to ship millions of board feet of lumber and millions of bushels of grain each and every year. Back in the day, as many as 20 trains passed through Barry's Bay each and every day. Of course, it did not last. Booth himself passed away in 1925 at the ripe old age of 98, and even by then his beloved OA and PS was no more. He had sold it to the Grand Trunk before the Grand Trunk, in turn, sold it to the Canadian National Railroad. And by the 1970s, CN abandoned that once dominant freight service that used to go clickety-clack along this platform. Indeed, regular passenger service stopped running through Barry's Bay by 1962. And before the end of the 20th century, the old OA and PS steel rails would be lifted and removed once and for all. The remarkable thing, though, is that this old station is still standing. On October 1st, 1894, it first opened its doors for business and today, 125 years later, we can still walk through that door behind me. No, you can't get a ticket to ride up there. And no, you can no longer send a parcel down the line. And no, you cannot, as they did back in the first half of the 20th century, send a telegraph message or pick up a famous set of boxing gloves the station agent kept 
in the passenger waiting room to settle using Queensbury rules, the old fisticuffs that could occasionally break out among the locals. Still, even today, this old station remains a unique place for arrivals and departures. It also is the only such station of its kind left standing anywhere in Canada. All of the others built by the Tomlinson brothers, Archibald and George, including the ones they built in Golden Lake, Killaloo, Madawaska, Whitney, and Canoe Lake, all of them are no more. The old station here in Barry's Bay, the one standing right here for the, for the past 125 years, this is the last of its kind. The lone reminder of something that happened to this town, this country, back in the last decade of the 19th century. It's what we really here to celebrate today. Call it part of a national dream. Call it an icon of our local culture and heritage. Call it what you will. This Barry's Bay Station still stands as a sacred icon of one of who we were, who we are, and who we might want to become again. It's the reason we want you to celebrate today. So let's enjoy the day as a day of arrivals and departures. It's a day to listen to some grand old roots music brought to you by the Stone Fence Theater. It's a day to look for the ghost of J.R. Booth and his wonderful wife, Rosalinda. It's a day to play a few historical games or go on a heritage scavenger hunt. It may even be a day for some of you to drive a spike into an old railway tie and win a prize, a $50 gift card, just like the navvies used to do when they laid down the tracks right here in front of me. So whatever you do here today, have a bit of fun with your own local history. Feel free to dance along with the music your own friends and family, and remember it's not business as usual here today. It's a chance to arrive for, from our past and depart into our future as a family, as a group of friends, as a community that knows what it means to still be standing after 125 years. And for old times' sake, do walk through the door up there and into the old OA and PS passenger waiting room as if you had just arrived back in town. It's a great feeling sometimes just to come home again and know that there's somebody who still knows you. When you get to see people and places that you still know, and who doesn't know this station? It's been here longer than any of us. So let's cut loose now, wander about, and have a little old-fashioned fun. I'm told that uh, Frankie Anthem might have a palate cleansing libation to show his appreciation just across the road there at his equally famous Balmoral Hotel, another one of our great institutions with a history all its own. If only those walls could talk. I could tell you a few stories. They might tell us about the old ghosts that still walk this old Opiongo Square, that nifty little patch of hallowed ground that holds in close proximity this station, the hotel, and Frank Stafford's old general store right over there where the Community Living Association is now housed. Imagine the history that has passed between these three buildings. Imagine, if you will, if some of those grand old characters who used to walk this square could talk to us today. Well, that might seem impossible to some of you, but not to our very own Apiongo Readers Theatre. 
Word has it they've been hard at work conjuring up old ghosts with the mind to recall two in particular, John Rudolphus Booth and his beautiful wife, Rosalinda. Hello, I'm Rosalinda Booth and I'd like to introduce the man of my dreams, John Rudolphus Booth. He's probably not what you might expect. I know when I first met him, I was not expecting to spend my life with this fascinating, fallible man. Yes, he does make mistakes. He himself will tell you that shortly. But he's also unique in that he owns his mistakes. That's part of his charm. His brilliance, his magic, if you will, is not only to learn from and never repeat those mistakes, but he's the only man I know who finds opportunity in his mistakes. In a phrase, he makes lemonade from lemons. Indeed. If it wasn't for his human frailty, his mannish fallibility, John Rudolphus Booth wouldn't be half the man he made of himself and the man I happily married. So, without further ado, I give you the man of my dreams, J.R. Booth. Thank you, Rosalinda. You've done the, done the honor of standing by me all these years. I want to tell you and everyone within earshot that it's not every woman who would, could, or should, or should have put up with me. So thank you, dear, from the bottom of my heart. Some call me Mr. Booth, some J.R., but nobody calls me John Rodovas. To most who know me, I'm simply Jim. A man who had an idea long ago, simply to harvest the fruits of our new nation. Now I want you to know a little about the man behind the idea, and more importantly, the many good men and women who joined me in pursuing that idea. My people, as they say, hail from England, by way of Ireland. I myself was born in Canada in 1827 on a little farm in the eastern townships of Quebec at a place called Lowe's, near Waterloo. I left that farm in 1852 when I was 21 years of age. I started working as a carpenter for the Central Vermont Railway. When I was 24, I married the love of my life, Rosalinda Cook. So you might think at that point my future was pretty much settled. I know I did. I never dreamed of what was going to happen to us in the ensuing decades after our marriage. Yet even as I was working at my carpentry trade, building a paper mill in Sherbrooke, Quebec, fate, or luck, or whatever you want to call it, offered me something unique. A chance to see life differently. An opportunity that looking back, I must have had the courage or stupidity to seize. You see, the owner of that mill, Andrew Leamy, was happy with more than just my carpentry work. 
He saw I had a peculiar way of working with my men. I worked alongside them. We'd figure out a task at hand, then we'd get the job done the smartest, fastest, and most efficient way we knew how. So Mr. Leamy asked me to manage his paper mill for him in the same way I and to work with his to work with his men, the way I worked with my own. I did as he asked for about a year. It's strange what an opportunity can do like that for a fellow like me. It led me to another small town in Quebec, up the Ottawa River. An English sounding place I had never heard of, a place called Hull. It was there I opened a shingle mill in an old building I rented from Alonzo Wright. Yes, one of the famous Wright clan who opened a timber trade here in the Ottawa Valley in 1819. It was Alonzo Wright that showed me the idea of what this country was made of and what good men like Wrights could make of it. I eventually broadened my shingle business so I would source the wood I needed to make those shingles. I established my own lumber company and one thing led to another. And before anyone seemed to notice, that lumber company won an interesting contract to supply the wood for the new parliament buildings that were going to be built in Ottawa. Ottawa, or Bytown as we called it back then, was very much a shanty town. Even in 1858, when Queen Victoria selected it as the new capital for what was still a colony of Britain, in some ways, I think a lot of other people should have bid and won that contract, but they didn't bother to bid, likely because they didn't think it would ever happen. Some people thought I was lucky to get that contract, others that I knew somebody on the inside, and still others suspect that uh, somehow I did something illegal or unethical to get that contract. Nothing could have been further from the truth. I simply had an old idea that somebody would have to supply the wood to build Parliament, and that like Canada itself, it would get built. And so, not, and so why not use my company and my company's wood to build the Parliament? So we did bid on, bid on and we won that contract. But it meant we would have to source a lot more timber than we actually held in stock. But you see, it's not for nothing that I learned to work alongside my men and learn how to solve problems with them. I never had any desire to become sort of a slave driving overseer, but I worked instead as a friend who respected their talents, their knowledge, and their ability to make a positive dis difference in the business and technical problems we confronted. Mind you, I did seem to have a knack for hiring those kind of problem solving men and women, people who worked well together to find opportunities along with solutions. Sometimes those people are not easy to find. I'm no softy, but I think I know how to get the best out of my people, and that is by working alongside them, by solving problems as a team. So together we quickly figured out how to get that wood we needed to build Parliament. What we found was that we had to go far up the Ottawa and its tributaries to the Bonchere, the Mississippi, and especially the mighty Madawaska and Opiongo River Valleys. Indeed, over the next few decades, we ended up so far north and west that in order to keep supplying our expanding lumber mill in Ottawa, I was first to, 
forced to build my very first railroad. In 1884, it was only a little railway, less than six miles long. It was called the Nosbosing and Nipissing Railway, but it did its job and it showed me another great idea. It taught me that steam was a great friend to help us harvest the fruit of our new country. For by 1867, we were no longer a British colony, but rather had become our very own independent nation. What I also, what I also learned the year Canada was born was that even the biggest ideas sometimes need a little shove. And I had watched Sir, Sir John A. Macdonald, I can even say I knew him, and learned from his barefaced courage. Call it what you will, but he's the one who taught me how to seize the day and take the best ideas and run with them. And something good happens, and then something great gets born. So in 1867, somebody brought me a very important idea. John Egan, an old lumber baron who had passed away and left part of his estate, a rich, if not remote, timber limit, was up along the Madawaska River, between what would later become the villages of Madawaska and Whitney. Well, I liked that idea so much that I bid for it. A bid my competitors thought, I suppose, like my bid to supply the timbers for Parliament, would be ruinous to my business. Some even said it was a bid so lavish and so stupid it would leave my comp company into a precipitous demise. You see, I offered $40,000, a lot of money back in 67, for the old Egan estate along the Madawaska. It was 250 square miles of virgin pine. I had never seen it, but I'd been told by one of my best men that it would be four to, worth four times that amount when it was ready to bear fruit. My competitor's bid, I'm told, was less than a quarter of what, they, what I offered, and so I won it. But curiously, five years later, when we had begun to bring that Egan fruit to our lumber yards in Ottawa, one of those competitors offered me more than one million dollars for the old estate. I wanted to tell him I was too stupid to take his kind and generous offer, but my better half Rosalinda told me that kind of response would surely be falling. And so I did as I was told and politely said, no thank you, and quietly went about my business. And what businesses over the next decade as Canada grew by leaps and bounds over the able leadership of those best of two men, Sir John A. and Sir Wilfrid Laurier. We all grew our businesses in the latter half of the 19th century. My own company gathered up over 7,000 square miles of timber limits, cutting rights in eastern, central, and northern Ontario. That was the best part. Then we built another railway, the Ottawa, Ironbrier, and Perry Sound, that passed right through this very station here in Barry's Bay. That was in the autumn of 1894. It gave me the greatest pleasure to get on that railway and go up to Madawaska to work all day beside the best of men harvesting virgin white pine and then work half the night away at our little office we kept at Macaulay Lake and working there to make sure we all benefit from the fruits of our labor. Interestingly enough, 
I learned a lot more things working alongside those Madawaska men. We solved a lot of problems, big problems. It was there, for instance, in 1894, while the old OANPS was being built as far west as Perry's Bay, that one of them suggested I start investing in tugboats in order to better bring our logs down the Ottawa to Chartier, where we had built what turned out to be the log largest sawmill in the world. Thirteen bandsaws all humming along at once and turning out upwards of 140 million board feet of lumber annually. Now to keep a mill that size supplied with enough saw logs, my best men told me that we needed at least two million logs annually in order to keep the mill running at capacity. Well, says I, we better get cracking. And of course we did. Many thought we'd never do it. Some called us just plain local and others stupid for trying. Well, we did it, my best men and me. We had the courage and some called stupidity to try and succeed we did. Mind you, it was not easy. Sometimes it would take us two years to get a log cut upriver and delivered to our sawmill in Ottawa. Still the job got done and was done by, done by some of the best men you would ever want to work alongside. But nothing lasts forever, nor would a good bird want it that way. All fruit gets used to feed someone or else drops from branches and withers and rejoins the good earth. Mankind is no different. And so as much as we were dominant in our ability to pursue our big idea, we all knew it would not, could not, or should not last forever. Just as I had come up the Ottawa Valley in 1852 as a young carpenter with my young family, others with their big new ideas by 1920 were overtaking old man Booth. And so it was by 1925, it was pretty well downhill from there on. Once a man gets to be 95, Tom, Mur Tom Murray once told me, he pretty well should slacken off a bit. Cut back to maybe only walking four or five miles a day. Let those young fellas try to catch up. And catch up they did. But by 1925, well, our big idea, letting the best and brightest work smart and work for the common good, well, that idea produced some interesting fruit. Half of our lumber was being shipped to England. In fact, our Madawaska white pine was being used to build the decks of those great ocean liners, the Lusitania and the Mauritania. Indeed, anyone who ever strolled their decks walked on a goodly bit of Madawaska Valley timber. But like the Lusitania, life is not without its mishaps, problems, or worries. The stuff that tests your metal. If not, sinks you outright. Mankind pretty well makes sure of that, even if God decides to give you a break or two. Oh well, we had our mishaps. Huge fires in our lumber yards. Conflagrations was how the newspapers described them, especially those newspapers in New York that had supplied the paper from our pulp and paint mills here in Canada. Fake news. We had conflagrations <laughs> in 1886, 1893, 1900, and 1903. In 1900, we lost 100 million board feet of fire alone. 
I even lost my home in Ottawa to a fire. Rosalinda was not happy that day. But as she often told me, one problem begets another, and then another, until an opportunity arises. So those Ottawa fires led the town fathers to a wicked idea, to shut us down by making us move our lumber yards beyond the city limits. We fought it and won, uh, at least in the short term. Not that we sat on our hands after those Ottawa fires, or even out in the remote forests that held our timber limits. If fires are kept out of the forests, there will be more pine in this country a hundred years from now than there was fifty years ago, and we shall have lots of timber for the generation to come. I remember that telling that to anyone who listened to me back then. It was an axiom I believed then as I do now. And so fire prevention and the ability to fight fires fast and effectively once it breaks out was a problem worth solving. That reminds me of a fellow, Frank Stafford, up here in Barry's Bay, back in 1894. To make a long story short, Frank and I got into one heck of a battle over the problem of fire prevention. He was afraid that all of those OA and PS steam engines that our engine that stopped outside his store here in Barry's Bay, well, he thought the sparks coming from our engines as they stopped by a water tower would set off a conflagration and destroy his dry goods store. So after freely giving us the land to build our station here in Barry's Bay, Frank Stafford then up and sues us in the court of law, mind you. He wasn't the first nor the last to do that. The CPR had taken a run at me more than once over the same OA and PS line. It's good to have a few good lawyers up your sleeve if you want to pursue a good idea. Only this time, Frank Stafford managed to hire a better lawyer than I had, and so he whooped us fair and square. Of course, I couldn't tell him that. In fact, I got a little little hot under the collar. It happens to the best of us. And so I moved this goddamn station about three miles up the line and told Frank that would keep his store safe and sound and far enough away from our steam engines that he need not worry anymore. That only made things worse. Frank didn't want to force us out of town. He only wanted us not to set his store on fire. It took months, but Frank and me finally came to our senses. We worked out a deal, and by the summer of, 19, or of 1895, the Barry's Bay Station was back in operation. Again, open for business, and all was right for the world. Which is why, I guess, when Tom Mix came down to Ottawa to let me know about some of his jobbers had overstepped their limit and cut some of my timber by mistake. I just smiled at a very nervous young man and said, not to worry, Tom, we all make mistakes. Pay me whatever you can for what you cut by mistake and go home and sin no more. <laughs> I don't know if Tom thought I was pulling his leg or he was just plumb exhausted from all the worry that he might do him, but the terror, the worry that but there's a terror that, that worry can do to a man, trying to correct his own or other people's mistakes. Which is why it's best not to be too high and mighty, and always look up beyond the lookout for a few good men, even among your so-called enemies. If the truth must be known, as my dear Rosalinda often reminds me, 
It's a good idea to keep an eye out for a few good women to keep us men folk from making too many mistakes. They will give us all gray hairs faster there than a conflagration can do. But it's interesting how solving one problem, or even a mistake, can lead to creating more problems and, ironically, more opportunities. Take, for instance, when we got the big mill running in Ottawa. We produced so much lumber, we couldn't get it out of town fast enough to our markets. So it became a fire hazard. And that got us into the railway and machine shipping business. If only to reduce the fire hazard inside Ottawa. One thing leads to another before you, and before you know it, we ended up building the largest private railway in the world. And by doing so, we then saw an opportunity for shipping grain from the Canadian West to markets along the Atlantic seaboard, as well as taking Eastern goods and shipping them to Chicago and the Midwest and out to California. So we entered the maritime shipping business, if only to keep our railroads running to capacity, and likewise doing that, we could keep our lumber mills running to capacity. One thing leads to another, one problem leads to a good solution, and that leads to unexpected opportunity. It takes good men and good women to see those problems, those solutions, and those opportunities. Me? Ah, sometimes I don't really see them at first. It takes other people, people who I work with and who work for me. Nobody wor really works for me. We work as a team, like one of Tom Murray's famous baseball teams. We all have our own job, pitcher, catcher, shortstop. My job, well, that's sometimes hard to define. I'm kind of like a utility player. I can play a lot of different positions because I've spent a lot of time in the bush or on the rails doing different jobs and doing what I could do to help out. Listening quietly to my betters who are far better at doing their jobs than I ever will be. And I'm always asking a lot of questions. Somebody once told me, I really only offer the world three things. I ask a lot of interesting questions. I attract and work with some of the best problem solvers known to man. And somewhere along the line, when it takes a little bit of courage, I like to think of it as inspired stupidity, I will gamble on what a team of problem-solving men and women who convinced me to make a play for a big idea, but that's where I come in, with enough gumption to pull the trigger and do what needs to be done. Honestly, though, nothing would ever get done without Rosalinda and all those wonderful men and women who bring me problems, solutions, and big ideas. Nothing, if just left to myself, would ever get done without the sort of people I grew up with in Quebec and got to know here in Barry's Bay. Even Frank Stafford, God rest his soul, was more than just one of those unintended consequences we may meet in life head on. Sure, he presented a problem, but in his own way, he led me to his solution. Better still, more opportunities. So I want to thank you all for coming out and listening to an old ghost, and I want to thank Rosalinda for getting me here. For as we all know, behind the myth of every great man, there's always the undying love and infinite patience of a woman. Good day and good luck. Well, thank you, JR, and thank you, all of you, for coming out today. We'd also like to thank the station keepers for keeping this old building alive and active 
within this community. Now, there's a big idea worth pursuing. We'd also like to thank the Opiongo Readers Theater for inviting us, especially its tireless producer, Barry Conway. <laughs> for his inspiring leadership in arranging this seance, where Big Jim and I could come back from the fog of history and be with all of you today. So, for all of us, enjoy the rest of your day here at the station. And if you like what you see and what you hear, don't be shy about making a donation to the station keepers. Good day and good luck. Thanks, uh, Joanne and Barry and everybody else involved in uh, this, uh, this event today. Not just the event, but the Station Keepers' uh, 125th anniversary coming up October 1st. They asked me to say a few words. Well, I have a little, you know, everybody, everybody who came from this town, Bobby, you'd know better than most of us, has a history uh, at this station. And when I was growing up, of course, we used to receive many of our goods for the hardware store right from this station would come in for train from the train. And of course, there was a little freight shed. It was a freight shed that was on the far end of this. It's not here anymore, but uh, like a lot of things, uh, things change. But, uh, you know, fewer and fewer of these stations are left, not only in Ontario, but everywhere where the, where, where the railways ran. So to the people that are keeping this going and making sure that this is preserved, uh, I want to give you a big, uh, a big thank you for your efforts. And hopefully everybody who's here will leave here understanding the importance of it and join up become a member and support them in any way you can now i'm going to tell you one particular story about this station which probably was one of my proudest moments it took place right well probably just about ish where that table is behind you i'm trying to i'm trying to gauge where the railroad tracks might have gone and i was uh, i was in grade two <clears throat> one of my five years there uh, just kidding <laughs> I was in grade two and I was on my way home from school and Jackie Beach, who was the station master and uh, would have been the telegraph operator. I wouldn't, I, I'm not sure I knew what a telegram was at that point, but I'm going, going home from school and Jackie Beach just stops me and he says, you're Yakabuski, right? I said, because I was always in trouble and anybody who, who knows me knows I was. I said, uh, uh, yeah. Um, why? He said, uh, I've got a telegram here for you. And I, and I just took off and I said, I'll tell my father he'll come and get it. And I just took off home. I'm sure I didn't even know what it was. But of course, my dad came up and got the telegram then. And it was a telegram from my brother Jamie and I on our eighth birthday from who was, who was the former prime minister at that time of John George Diefenbaker. Now, what was interesting was three days earlier, Diefenbaker had stopped at our house. And in those days, children didn't stick their nose in when adults were speaking. It just didn't happen. But we did see my dad talking over with uh, Mr. Diefenbaker. He'd pulled up in the Buick, had a driver, and pulled up. And they were having a conversation. And dad actually took us over there and introduced Jamie and I to, to Mr. Diefenbaker. 
so three days uh, three days later was our birthday we got a got a telegram from Mr. Diepenbaker and that was lost for many I, I saw it many times and after my dad died couldn't find the telegram and last year my brother Martin who had been had taken a whole bunch of stuff and put it in storage after dad died which was 1987 he came to our place last summer with that telegram framed yeah framed and I had wondered if it was ever going to be found again it hangs in my office uh, in Toronto but for those of you who don't know my brother Jamie and I were born on the 14th of June 1957 Diefenbaker was elected Prime Minister on the 10th of June. I was actually named after Diefenbaker, and my brother Jamie James was named after Jim Baskin, who also had won the riding of Renfrew South. Politics is mixed into everything. Now, most people in good Catholic Christian Barry's Bay assumed that we were named after the Apostles, John and James. And my father, being an astute politician, never did anything to dissuade them from that. But those of you who knew me grow, growing up also knew that there was no way that I was one of the apostles. But anyway, that was a, 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 just one of the stories about history in front of this station. So what was I, eight years old? So some 54 years ago, right about where that picnic table is, uh, one, of the, one, of, one of the moments I'll never forget. And I thought that moment had been lost in history till my brother Martin presented me with that telegram last summer. Anyway, anything you can do to keep this history going, it's, it's amazing to have it standing here the way it is. I want to thank all of those people who put so much heart and soul to keeping it this way. And anything you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much.